Mike Zimmer and welcome to this week's VFX show. Yes, I'm back and congratulations to the guys for doing such an excellent job without me. I feel completely redundant. Um, though I didn't miss the wisecrack <coughs> by um, <coughs> somebody <coughs> on the call, Matt, um, <laughs> about my uh, favourite director. I'm joined uh, today by Matt Wallen and hopefully in a second uh, by another one of our hosts. But Matt, just for the time being, it's you and I. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. It's a, a, a very uh, loud... I, I, I realized in my la- our last recording that the when we record usually at nighttime for me, so it's ten o'clock p.m. Uh, on the east coast uh, of the United States, and the crickets are so loud that if uh, I'm not careful, they they're actually picked up by my microphone. So I close some windows tonight. I'm going to try to keep the cricket to a minimum, <laughs> but other okay. than that, I'm I'm good. <laughs> Well, okay, good. <laughs> hey, um, so we're going to be discussing uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind this week in what I'm going to guess is one of Matt's favourite films of all time, but we'll get to that in one second. We're going to try and discuss the visual effects and, of course, some of the thematic uh, issues brought out uh, in this absolute classic film, which is currently celebrating a renaissance and a re-release um, due to a certain anniversary. Um, but, of course, with uh, all of these things, with our retro films, you know, just the nature of them, we tend to sort of want to try and also place them in a kind of a cultural context. Um, so from this, was it 1977 film? Was that yeah, right? Yeah, 1977 was uh, the year it came out, the same year as uh, Star Wars. Now, am I right in thinking this is one of your favourite films? It seems to be a film that's really uh, got a special place in your heart. Yeah, you know, it's funny, like, it, I, as a kid, I think I saw it in the theaters, you know, around the time it came out, probably at the age of seven or eight years old. And um, I, I liked it as a kid, um, but I think it, it wasn't the kind of thing as a, as, a, as, a, as a little guy, like, I didn't, it didn't have the same appeal as a movie like Star Wars, I think, because it's, I actually think it's a little bit more <laughs> sophisticated. Um, just got a little note from Jason there. He says he's sorry he passed out on his sofa, so he's going to join us in a minute. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was one of those ones where um, it wasn't uh, quite on my radar as a little kid, and although I saw it and I and I liked it, but it wasn't quite as big. And over the years, as I've gotten older, and I actually went to film school, and then wound up working in the movie business, even working with Scott Squires, who worked on Close Encounters, and Dennis Muren, and so. Um, you know, over the years, I, I've seen it so many times. It's it's really grown on me, and I've I've really developed a, I think a, kind of a deep appreciation for it. I I, I would say, um, I think I said this last time we talked, Mike, but uh, I do think this is a masterpiece. Like I think it's one of the the greatest films of the sort of blockbuster era of filmmaking. You know, the sort of explosion of the blockbuster, starting with. Films like Jaws, Close Encounters, Star Wars. Like, I think it's one of the best movies um, of its type from that time for a whole number, a whole host of reasons that you know we can talk about some if we want to. But um, uh, yeah, I think it's it's a great film, and I I did go see it again with this 40th anniversary re-release, and I went with my wife and my son, and like, I mean, we all just we'd all seen it before. My son had seen it before too, but we all just loved it. It was so, so great. And it was so fun to see it, um, on the big screen. I actually saw some things that I probably didn't see, uh, on my television screen. So. 
I, I, it was stupid of me to say what year was it because of course it was the 40th anniversary means it must have been 77. Um, the thing for me about this film and of course I was at that great age that I was young when this came out but not so young that, you know, like I was a kid and so it was Star Wars this that was all like in awe stuff, right? I was a bit young to sort of appreciate the original Alien but I was, for these were like just so completely in my wheelhouse. But for me they they signalled a monumental shift in filmmaking from what seemed to be kind of hokey special effects to, for me, completely believable special effects. I mean, I saw this film and if you'd asked me afterwards, I'd have had no technical fault with it, like none. Like I thought it was not only a well-made film and a masterpiece in terms of, as you've described it, but just from a technical point of view, from visual effects, I was in awe of how they'd done this. And to me as a kid, this was, you know, you couldn't get any better. I couldn't imagine them making spaceships any more believable or better. There's stuff in this film that um, I remember as being flawless that I now can technically see fault with, which may be experience, maybe uh, age, maybe just that we've all become so much more educated uh, in what we do. So do you know what the effects count was on this film? I don't know if you know what it is, but could you want to guess what the effects count of shot count on this film is for visual effects? That's tough. Yeah, it's hard. It's so hard to say. Like I would guess uh, 50 shots. 200. Wow. Yeah, that seems more accurate actually. <laughs> Um, one of the reasons, uh, I believe, is that almost everywhere you see stars when people are outside and looking up and stuff, they were put in because mm. you don't get stars uh, exposing with, of course, uh, anything in the foreground being lit. And so to have people looking up at the stars, you needed to put the stars in. Um, but anyway, it's uh, it's 200 shots and yet like before I rewatched it, I could have, if you had told me it was 500, I'd have believed you. It seemed, the visual effects seemed so dominant. Yeah. Like the Terminator, right? The Terminator 2, you just imagined that there was so much more time of visual effects on screen than there actually was. Well, this was. movie too, like, you know, in, in, in shot count, it's kind of hard to say because there's so many layers, you know, they're doing everything optically. And when you're looking at the number of like ships and like lighting passes and stuff, you, I mean, I look at that and I'm thinking, wow, this is like the optical days. And I just look at it and see like, you know, pass upon pass upon pass and like layer upon layer upon layer in order to get and achieve the look that they get. Well, it's interesting you should say that because from my point of view, if I, my research is right, they, were, they only ever went to 18 layers in this. They only ever went to 18 elements, which is by our standards, yeah. nothing, right? But yeah, by, yeah. Um, but by optical film printing techniques, it's obvious why they had to go to um, 70 millimeter. Hey, I'm just as we're speaking, I think we've got um, a extra voice in the wilderness joining us. <laughs> uh, am I right in thinking that uh, yes. that you're there, sir? Jason Diamond, yes, how I are do. you? I, I have arisen. Excellent. Um, I hope the hangover <laughs> isn't too bad. Uh, yeah, it's a hangover from a, a previous night's VFX show followed by a 5 a.m. Uh, <laughs> Wake up for a scout, early morning scout. Excellent. Nice. Well, we've just uh, been discussing um, some of the technical aspects of uh, Close Encounters, so we're so glad you can join us. Hey, um, we were just saying that like uh, it was a monumentally impactful film and certainly in my case for this idea that special effects could look completely real and it was that era when filmmaking seemed to suddenly take a turn and every good film like Star Wars like this was producing what seemed to be revolutionary visual effects. I mean, can you remember what your impression was when you first saw the film? 
I, it's interesting because I don't recall the first time I see it. I just recall always loving this movie. Like, it's like never, it's like I never had, it's like I had never not seen it, if that sentence makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sure. And I just, yeah, I just always remember having a deep affinity for the film in all, all aspects. And certainly having seen it after uh, seeing Star Wars, I believe, you know, as we've all said, Star Wars made us all acutely aware of practical and uh, special and visual effects. Um, and, you know, this one, come, you know, Spielberg always came at that stuff slightly differently, but this was his first uh, big giant leap into that. And, uh, you know, I sort of, I think to sort of mirror my experience, I took my kid to see this uh to see close encounters in a theater because i wanted him to see it over the summer uh just to see it because it's like oh you should see this movie it's amazing and and then i saw that it was coming to the theater and i was like okay you're gonna what you're gonna see it in the theater for the first time and i think his level of enjoyment was sort of matched by my own uh at his age he's a 10 and a half i was younger i think i was uh, seven or eight but uh you know, Spielberg has, or he had even more than this ability to to manage multiple tonal shifts from not horror, but sort of certainly a personal horror, like uh, the mom's, you know, losing her son to alien kidnappers, while at the same time feel the joy that the kid feels that the aliens are there and they're friendly to him. Interesting uh, that you saw it, because I saw it with my daughter, and she saw it for the first time recently uh, in the lead up to this podcast. She's a bit older, but her um, point was uh, sort of, I, you know, I'm going to say 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in, like at the beginning, um, she was like, I looked at her and I went, okay, it doesn't all stay like this. It's not all just weird all the time. And she's like, right, so there is actually some character development. <laughs> and I, seeing it through her eyes, I thought, yes, if you're making this film today, you'd have probably wanted to connect with characters a bit earlier than Spielberg did because we live in an age where if entertainment isn't connecting, you just change channels, you move on, you don't necessarily have a, a view that everyone's going to be captivated in the cinema the way you could in, in these days. Because obviously there's a huge amount of character work in the film. But if you actually look at the structure of it, the first part of the film with the, um, the sand uh, blowing with the planes and mm -hmm. stuff that's going on, there seemed to be no particular characters, no particular character development. There was just lots of what's going on, which of course, you yeah. know, worked. And for us, we knew where it was going. But I, I feel in my memory, it's, you know, super rich in character and, and uh, actual character development and people and, you know, there are like people have complex personalities. But of course, most of that doesn't happen at the very beginning of the film. It happens, I guess, at about what the, the midpoint of the film when he's um, dealing with the angst of this unknown um, calling, I guess you'd call it, or this uh, yeah. communal experience. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. If you made this movie now, the, all the stuff with Lacombe and, and the, the, the ships and everything would have come after Neary's experience. In, yeah. in today's structure. 
it just felt like otherwise you'd be watching and you go, what am I watching? And then you just have too much of the population not watching it in a cinema environment. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Right. But it just it's so hard. It's so it's like so hard to think about it in that way. Like I, I, I hear what you guys are saying, and I, I, I tend to think like, oh, it's probably true. But then at the same time, I, I feel like there's such a um, really interesting attempt at creating a structure that is. Um, I don't know when I watch it, I feel like, and, 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 you know, at least for my, for my son going to see it in the theater. Now he'd seen it on uh, DVD prior, but you know, he's 13 and I don't know, he, he, he's uh he didn't get bored, you know, like he was definitely like in the zone. He was like kind of following what was going on. He likes the intrigue, the kind of mystery of like, what is happening? What is going on? Like all these people in these seemingly normal jobs, um, normal people in the desert, um, normal people, you know, in the air traffic control, like, but all of a sudden, even in the context of all this sort of technical jargon in the air traffic control scene, you are getting tiny hints and tiny wisps of like these things happening over the radio. And it's weird how something so sterile uh, in particular in that environment can be both so visually and uh, story wise and auditorially uh, compelling, right? Like we, I, I we really do get a picture in our is, minds of what's yeah, happening. That air traffic controller scene is a standout in so many ways. For a start, it is without compromise in terms of the dialogue and the audio that it doesn't seem to say to the audience, hey, I'm going to dumb this down and make it really clear. Yeah. Nobody walks yeah. over and says, what are you looking at? Hey, I'm looking at this uh, plane here, which is doing what it shouldn't be doing. Wait, I'll get back to the action now. There's well, no I think exposition. those guys are real air traffic controllers too. Like, One I mean, of them is, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. He was um, like the, straight the on-set consultant and they, they put him in. But, you know, the, 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 that voice that they use, which is obviously clear in one sense, but completely unemotional and untheatrical in another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you sort of almost like you don't need to understand what he's saying so much as it is you kind of get the, there's like a certain cadence about it that is just in of itself mesmerizing as this sort of plays out. But it's it's a dull scene in, in, on paper. I, I mean, should be, shouldn't it? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. Well, also... Also, the drone shot. <laughs> <laughs> of, yeah, circling the air traffic controller. Yeah. Like, where's the exterior shot? Yeah. Establishing shot. Uh, and and to you, Matt, I agree with you 100% what you said about the opening. And I think it should be the way it is. I'm just saying uh, through the lens Mike had proposed, totally. if someone were yeah, making no, I, that now, they would they would never do that. And not necessarily but, yeah, the and better it, for it, but I just think it wouldn't be done that no, way. No, it wouldn't be better yeah. at all. I think... I think Spielberg's approach is much more European, which is, you know, obviously him putting Truffaut in the movie was, was they were all like obsessed with Truffaut at that in the oh, mid seventies. Best $75,000 sure. he ever spent. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, and, but, and I was so um, funny cause sorry, I was going to say, you know, obsessed. I was obsessed with Truffaut cause I was obsessed with Hitchcock and, and Truffaut has this terrific, you know, thing with the interviews between Truffaut and Hitchcock. Yeah. Yeah. That book is yeah, classic. It's just, Exactly. And so I was like, oh my God, like this is just, it blew my head away. And it was the, I think it's the only film he acts in that he didn't also direct. I think I'm right in saying that. Mm. But he, okay, so like the air traffic controllers, there was something about his performance that was just so believably, like he had a, an insightful curiosity about what was going on. Like the interrogation scene where he's sort of like, 
neither pretending like he's not going to give the answers and he's going to play good cop, bad cop, nor is he gushing forward and sort of just answering all the questions. He's just he's just rapid fire asking these questions. And uh, is it, what's the, the translator's name? It's Bob somebody, right? Um, Bob Balaban. He's yeah. ju- I love that guy. Man, he's just so good yeah, in that scene, the interrogation scene. And his, his ability to kind of almost do a double take back to Truffaut and then keep going and then they talk over the top of each other. Again, that yeah. and the air traffic control scene, the cadence and the voice stuff, it's like it's, it's Sorkin level and that's my highest compliment. <laughs> well, what I was going to yeah. say about the air traffic controller scene is that it is confusing and he doesn't expect you to follow it until you start to piece it together that, okay, they're looking at, you know, they're they're looking at airplanes, they're talking to airplanes, they're talking to multiple people. And then it's not till the end where it really coalesces when they literally say, do you want to report a UFO? And you're like, ah, <laughs> I get it. That's what they're talking about. Oh, UFOs. Well, it's not necessarily a spaceship. Nah, they didn't see a spaceship. I don't want to report it just one means, of those. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, I don't want to, no, no. And they're all like, no, 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 no. I don't but, want to but do it was that. Actually, yeah. There was one shot before that when all the other traffic controllers turn around and look to camera left. That was the signal to the audience that something really extraordinary was happening. I think that happened before yep. the UFO line. But yeah. other I, than that... And they well, all gather around that, that yeah. radar screen. Yeah, yeah. But and the, and the reflections where you see their reactions, but you're looking at the screen is mm-hmm. incredible. But can I... The thing that I realized watching this in the theater, because I hadn't seen it in the theater in a very long time, is, and I, and I think it comes up more strikingly, but in less of a almost pseudo-documentary style, is, is Spielberg's penchants for portrait shots. And mm. obviously the real super close-ups of Indy in Raiders that follow this movie are more iconic in a different way. But in this movie, there's tons of those little subtle <clears throat> Spielberg just below the eye line jaw, you know, with a slight push and a raise with people looking at like a three quarter or a quarter, depending on where the camera is. Like when Lance, they do that pull out of Lance Henriksen, uh, you know, at the end in the, in the main uh, arena there. And they just pull out and, the guys in the red walk through, walk mm-hmm. at camera, stop, look off to the left, and like one guy's in focus. There's these tons of these moments of like almost 50s era portrait shots that I was like, wow, I never realized how like almost verite doc that is in a way. Yeah. Like he's capturing these people's moments, but at the same time, they're like these beautiful portraits of people and they never look at the camera. They're never looking at the camera. Well, just in in keeping with that, just real quick, in keeping with that, that one of the other things I think you can do with this film is this is one of the, this is the only movie, as far as I know, actually, that Spielberg, uh, he wrote or or was credited, at least with writing the screenplay and directing. Like, this was a really personal movie, from what I understand for him. Didn't he write, did he write Jewel? I thought Jewel was a personal film, but maybe it wasn't. No, I'm looking at IMDb here and... Uh, Sugarland Express, which is the movie he made prior to Duel, I believe. Yeah. Uh, he has a story credit. Close Encounters is the first movie he has a written by credit on. Yeah. Okay. Well, well the that's... the reason I bring that up, I guess, like with with regards to his writing of it, is and what you were talking about, Jason. I think is so interesting about the. 
the sort of the documentary kind of the portraiture kind of vibe, I think you can watch Close Encounters and in watching it and sort of picking it apart, I think you can see almost with a couple exceptions, but almost every single technique shot, like direction, um, everything that Spielberg will do for the rest of his career up to the present day, you can see it all in close encounters. I've heard you, I've heard you saying this theory before, and I think it's the most brilliant theory ever. I, I mean, it rivals my happiest Game of Thrones and, um, and West World theories. And you've got to expand on it because the examples, I've heard you do this before, but your examples on this are spectacularly good. Can I give us the examples? Come on. So, so, uh, there's, there's a number of examples. Um, one of the first ones, uh, that always comes to mind for some reason is, uh, when the, um, the, the sort of forces that be the sort of government forces or this kind of quasi sort of, you know, international government force that's trying to come up with a reason as to like, how are we going to get all these people around devil's tower to evacuate? And they're like trying to come up with like a, something that they're going to do. How's it going to work? And, um, they decide, you know, it's going to be this, this poison or something, right? Like, or, a, a what is it? A anthrax or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, there's a scene where a whole host of people from the neighboring towns are being evacuated, um, in sort of a, a military kind of way. And they're all being put onto a, a freight train and they're being put into boxcars and stuff. And if you look at that shot for shot, like right next to shots from Schindler's list, um, you know, he's, he's in 1976, I assume when they're shooting this scene, he's actually shooting a scene that he'll shoot decades later when he goes to make Schindler's list where, you know, they're, uh, the, the Nazis are putting, uh, the, yeah. uh, Polish Jews on, you know, cars to send them to Auschwitz or whatever. Um, that's just one example. Um, there are, uh, so many, uh, shots and reaction shots. Um, I'm trying to think of what some of the other well, examples the are. Poltergeist example. The poltergeist example. So yeah, the poltergeist example of the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, well, I mean, there's a couple actually examples that are sort of like poltergeist, I guess, like one, there's the, the omnipresent nature of television in this movie, but also the, uh, the scene that you were talking about, Jason, with the, uh, the abduction scene of little Barry. And, uh, is that the one you were talking about, Mike? Is that, I, yeah, I'm trying yeah. to remember actually what some of the ones I've cited are, but where the screws are sort of inversely yeah. coming out of the floor and, um, I don't know. I feel like when I watch it, like there's so many, it would be fun. It would be a big project, but it'd be fun to actually take apart all the scenes in Close Encounters that I know that when I watch it, I'm like, oh, that's just like that shot in, you know, this movie. Well, there's that's also, like shot there's also signature moves that are not necessarily um, like camera moves that he does in this too, which is the the classic Spielberg, which is the camera approaches the ground low, comes up at a rise in like a hill mm-hmm. and up over the hill is the boom, big reveal of totally, whatever. Yeah. That is perfected. Devil's Tower. That is perfected well, in this movie. There's a 
there's a shot in this too that's actually directly, it's almost identical to a shot in E.T. when the boy yeah. uh, hears all the toys and stuff and he runs downstairs because he's all kind of excited. Yeah. And we, we know that he's probably off screen seeing one of the aliens and he wants to play and, and uh, he runs downstairs and the refrigerator is open and exactly like the yeah. shot in E.T. when um, I think it's E.T.'s left at home alone, yeah. right, with the dog or something and uh, rummages through the refrigerator. It's it's identical. It's the but same even, shot. Like oh, I think there are Indiana Jones shots in here as well. Yeah, well, that's the yeah, that's, for sure. That, that is the the modified version of the up and over the hill shot. Is the is the camera pushing in as someone runs at the camera and ends you right. know right in frame? I mean, that's the classic indie shot in the marketplace. But also in this, he mirrors those shots uh, that up over the rise shot where he does that of. All the times Roy makes the model, makes the model, the, is trying to make that shape. Mm-hmm. He does that. It starts super subtle until he makes the big one in his living room, and they do the slow push and come up over the rise, over the little tiny, uh, tiny uh, train tracks and everything. And it's the same shot that he does later. But here's something that I really realized recently: the night before I went to see. Uh, Close Encounters, I was laying on the couch and Raiders came on. And of course, I had to watch the whole thing because it's it's an, it's an amazing movie. And I'll just yeah. watch five minutes. Wait, I'll be up in a sec. No, honey, honestly. Yeah, you, totally. I'll, I'll be there in a sec. <laughs> you can't eat just one. Yeah. yeah. And Spielberg, and, and so I watched it the night before and, and then went to Close Encounters the next morning. And Spielberg's ability for uh, illusion is incredible in his shot design. So like <laughs> even to the point of like in Close Encounters, Roy, prior to going out, getting the emergency call to go out on the truck, is playing with his kid and he's giving him a math example, but he's using a, something stalled <laughs> on the tracks. Totally. Right? I mean, it's like yep. everyone yep. alludes to all of their actions before they happen in the in these tiny ways and these big ways, not you know everyone can say, well, that's just movie making, but it's but it's done at such an expert level that you don't even know it's happening. I mean, there's a shot in Indy when when the he eats the you know when the guy comes in and pours the 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 poison on the dates, and in, yep. it starts. It's the whole open of that scene is one shot. And it starts with Indy looking out from inside, cameras outside, and his whole face is obscured except for one eye that's lined up to look through this patterned, you know, hole in the in the yeah. door. So you see one eye, Indy leaves, you have enough room to see the kid come in, dump the the, the dates, and then the kid walks out, the door opens, because you're in the you're in the bad guy's POV, and then the ga- bad guy walks in and he has an eye patch. And you're like He's letting you know right at the head of the scene with the one eye of Indy that there's something like be on the lookout for that, right? And then the guy oh, turns cool. and he has an eye yeah, patch and you're like, oh my God, like I never, how did I not realize this before? Why am I watching this? And all of a sudden, like all this stuff is like super apparent to me and it hasn't you been know, before. I, I, I'm always like, I don't want to sound too effusive, like in terms of my uh, praise of Spielberg, but I, I think, you know, you, that, that, that's another great example. But I think you look at this, you look at this movie, you look at that movie, um, you know, and it's 
granted, Spielberg is incredibly popular. He's a very populist filmmaker. He's an extremely popular um, kind of cinematic icon. I think everybody knows. Uh, and, and, you know, he gets his fair of, uh, and I think somewhat justified from time to time, he gets his a fair bit of uh, slagging from people. Sure. Like, you know, whether you're talking about the, um, the sort of pat ending to Saving Private Ryan or sort of the nice bow tie ending in Chandler's List, you know, that they try to sort of create in there. Although, you know, you could I debate, you know, the Senate... The sentiment, but the sentimentality of the ending, okay. I think sometimes, you know, that that's something that I know that I've heard people criticize him for. But I think that, you know, all these things we're talking about, one of the things that I always come back to, and I, it's, it's really hard for me to like argue against this perspective and not that I'd want to, but I, I, I can't find an argument against it. Like he is a brilliant filmmaker, a brilliant director of actors, like, and he is thinking cinematically about how he's going to compose shots, how he's going to break down sequences, all in an effort to tell stories. Like, I think he's a true master filmmaker in like the best sense of the word. And like, I, I feel like I sound so like, you know, <laughs> sycophantic about it. Like, I don't mean it to be that way. I just think he's, I think he's really a, like a, at the top of uh, the heap when it comes to well, he was a, pretty this young when he style of well. filmmaking. He, he wasn't was he like, oh my God, yeah. It's just yeah, like really obscene. <laughs> yeah, it's super obscene. And you see, did they show the little featurette before you saw it? They did, and I wish they'd showed that at the I end know. instead of at the beginning. I thought that was actually a mistake to put it at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Hey, um, but, but there were choices that he made. Like, for, we just skipped right past it, but can I just go back and say, like, don't you think it was like a super mm. interesting choice that he started the whole thing in that windstorm, like that, that you know, sandstorm, as it were? Yeah. Like, it, I was just looking at that and I was thinking – you're just making it hard for the audience and hard for your actors, but you're making it hard like, how can I put this? You're making it hard as part of the story. Like it's hard, they're facing mm-hmm. hard things, but it wasn't immediately obvious that you would just do it that way because obviously it made for much harder filmmaking and much you know, you know, more difficult kind of time for everyone, even audio and everything else. But having said that, like it was... It was a non-trivial decision to say this whole first scene, which didn't have to, was going to play out in a sandstorm, which I was like looking at and I was thinking, wow, what I've had the... Because it was, you know... The, which is hard yeah, the, the foresight or the Conejos to pull it well, off. Also, the other thing he... Because that whole scene... The other thing oh, he does that it's... Oh, it's just sorry. I didn't mean to talk over you, but it, it's just the thing that he does at the beginning as well is in terms of the, the audio, he creates a... Um, extremely like bombastic and very cinematic and very dramatic kind of bold opening where the film opens, you know, essentially to silence with some credits. And then, uh, there's the opening sort of crescendo where it's almost like a, um, it's, I think on the soundtrack, it's called let there be light, which is so pompous, but kind of awesome too. Right. Like it is self-reflexive on the nature and essence of this is a film. This is a, this is filmmaking. This is art making. Um, there's a self-reflexive thing. It's a film in many ways about Spielberg, I think in some essence, right. As an artist, as a filmmaker, he's making this thing that, um, is about communication and reflection. And it, it opens with that, like almost, it sounds like an orchestra warming up and then this loud sort of, you know, pop crescendo at the end, the John Williams score. And then we're in that dust storm. You know, like, so there's this very theatrical kind of presentation, um, that's happening at the beginning of that film. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're in a big theater and, you know, you're, you're sort of psyched for this thing, you're ready to see it. I think it's a, it's a, 
it's a strong opening. You know, it's, it's very unusual. We don't see stuff like that yeah. today as often, I mean, but it's yeah. powerful. I saw it in the Dolby theater. So I had the Dolby laser projector and the whole shebang. And interestingly, it was, the image was still soft and noisy because I think, you know, uh, Vilmos, you know, when he shot it was that, you know, I think they had, a, it seemed like a much more like natural light, even though there's obviously tons of incredible lighting in it. It still has like in the Neary household, it is, that is of like a an seemingly available light look. It's like a lower mm-hmm. rated stock. Well, it looks stock. like a Cassavetti's Yeah, it's like a lower rated stock, you know? film stock that they just were like, push it, I don't, you know, push it in processing. But to what you were saying about that opening sandstorm scene, that is the perfect example of how, especially a younger Spielberg, knows how to put a scene, have the audience understand the viewpoint of the scene from a character's POV without having it to be having the character, the camera exposition required near the cam near the character. So that whole opening scene is really about Bob Balaban, right? He shows up. He's like, what's happening. I'm not a, I'm I'm not a a translator. I'm a cartographer. And so the, the confusion of the what's going on and I don't understand why I'm here and I'm out of place which of course is reflected in the planes being there, is all just underlined by something that makes no logical sense but makes complete emotional sense, which is the sandstorm. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think is just really cool. And the other thing I was going to say is two other things I was going to say. Firstly, um, this did win Best Oscar and the only Oscar it won, I think, for cinematography. Um, I think the colour palette, we're just going to skid it over there for a second, but it's super saturated um, for the aliens and can get quite muted um, away from the aliens, which is... um, you know, we don't discuss those because oh, this wouldn't be a film that was graded in a, in a traditional sense. It was only colour timed. And so, um, wow, even saying that, graded in a traditional sense? Uh, okay, it was <laughs> colour timed in a traditional sense and wouldn't have had modern grading tools. So to get all of that saturation and all that stuff in there, you're, you're getting that in camera pretty much. You're not able to like wind up the saturation in post. Um, you don't have and those control visual of saturation. effects shots, a lot of those. Or well, compo- are they? I mean, some of them composited. are just light shots. Well, well sure. but I mean like and, – and the other thing I was going to say is that um, – so that's one aspect of it. And the other thing I was going to say about it is that it, it just strikes me as such a brilliant um, piece of uh, use of filling in like in Jaws – um, your imagination by playing so much of this out in light, yeah? I mean, we just so don't need to see alien mm-hmm. ships mm-hmm. to be so interested in them. And then you get that – you get these scenes that are so monumentally now, in my mind, cliched because they defined the cliched. And I, I mean, of course, like the truck sequence where the lights come up behind yeah. him and he waves them past and then lights come up and they go over the top, which is obviously just a bunch of lights on a crane. But, I mean, you could have spent – as much money as you possibly liked on that shot, you never would have got as much of a reaction out of me when I saw that the first time, the second, the fourth, the fifth time I saw it. I just love that. Yep. The lights go up and over. And it's like yeah. all it's my the favorite sequence needs. in the movie too. Well, and then That's you the do get, sequence in the you know, whole and then film, you I do get so later, he gives you a little under the underbelly shot and he gives you the big shadow shot to be like, hey, just chill. Like this thing's big. You know what I mean? Like he yeah. gives you just the clues. Um, you know what's crazy? I just just throw this in there when you talk about the shadow, like passing over the landscape that we see the truck driving across the landscape after he's had the encounter, yeah. and then we see the big shadow of the ship. You know what? I'd never seen that shadow before until this screening. 
That's it's crazy. Like I, I don't think I'd ever seen that shadow when I watched the or movie on like seeing it. DVD. Yeah, yeah like you, I mean, it was you know, so ship, obvious was in, be in dark. the projection. The ship was going to be dark, and then he saw a uh, Indian, I think, power station all lit up with lights and stuff, and decided to go with the ship mm-hmm. being. Uh, made of lights. So there are a bunch of shots in there that yeah, on set cool. they had shadows playing and in reality they put a lot of lights in but they didn't have the contact lights on set. Sorry, it's a little special effects point. But they didn't have contact lighting on set because they didn't think the ship would be, when they started the filming, this massive amount of lights. Yeah, um, interesting. I also want to give a shout out if I can to something that I've been referencing, which is the podcast that you did back, I'm going to say in uh, 2013, which I said I heard you listening to uh, in discussing some of these theories before. This was the podcast oh, yeah, me Visual and, Story. Yeah, Visual Story. Uh, Paul Zadie, uh, like a friend of the show, like super, super cool dude. Um, he had a podcast that I, I don't think, I mean, it might... St- I think he might, he, he's talked about reviving it. I don't think he's no, doing he it right now. He only but did like six episodes, right? He, he did like six or, or seven eight, or yeah, eight episodes. And I did two of them. I did uh, All the President's Men and Close Encounters where he let me pick the movies I wanted to do. And and he and I had, a, a I think, a it's one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done. It, it, you know, not to like, you know, humble brag or whatever, but like, it was cool. Like we had a great conversation about, um, about Close Encounters and maybe, uh, I don't know if we could put the link to it in the show notes, but it's like, it's such a cool, um, uh, it was, it's a fun conversation. We don't really speak much about visual effects in it, but we talk about all these kind of theories and try to draw out some meaning and connections into like, why is this movie so resonant? And you know, what, uh, what about it, um, you know, uh, makes it something that, uh, communicate so well to so many different people. And so we sort of postulate and theorize about like, you know, <laughs> all these kind of theories and ideas and stuff. It's, it's a, I don't know, it was a fun one. It was a really fun episode. It is a really good podcast, but can I just, um, if I can uh, get back at you for last week by pointing out that in that uh, lovely podcast that you guys recorded in 2013, you happily referred to the terrific globe sequence, which I'm sure we're going to touch on where they're at the uh, trailer that for no apparent reason has a glass side and they run yeah. up to get the globe and you were like, I, I think it was you, were like saying, oh, because he, you remember he works out that the coordinates that are being, the numbers are actually the GPS coordinates. And I'm sitting there going, uh, guys, GPS wasn't started until 78, a year after this film was finished. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, just it was, for continuity it was on longitude podcasts. and latitude, like Two, minutes, yes. Uh, yes. seconds and, or whatever it was, but, uh, uh, degrees, was, minutes uh, and seconds. As I was doing a double take at my uh, pod, <laughs> as my iPhone thinking, oh, wow, you guys, uh, you know, you obviously meant that and you said GPS. I was thinking just how easy <laughs> it is to have continuity errors. And, you know, we always criticize them, like people come up with things. Oh, they mentioned this and it wasn't invented until three years later. But um, yes, it is incredibly easy to do that. And I often think we're too harsh on filmmakers when they obviously do a small slip up. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the hardest it. things is to remember what it was like, you know, or what the existing technology was at a given point in time. It's even if you live through it, you know, we sort of, we come to take for granted the things that we have like on a daily basis today. And so when you think back to, yeah, you think back to like pre sort of, although it wasn't totally pre GPS, I'm sure there was military grade. No, uh, literally military systems, started but, in 78. The satellite system was yeah. first launched in 78. This was filmed in 76 and released in 77. I love Sorry. that you know that. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so perfect. <laughs> but it's, but it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think you make a good point. Yeah. 
for sure. No, but but interestingly, like because I was watching the film, I thought it was so funny, right? They see its coordinates, and of course today it'd be so easy to access a map, and and you know they had to go get a globe. <laughs> but it was just funny that um, beyond that, you know, this this notion of um, <laughs> looking at these films that they, you know, they are 40 years old and 40 years, a lot has changed. So the fact that this Uh, stands up at all in terms of visual effects is just remarkable. And yet I would say that it more than stands up, it just still produces some breathtakingly good shots. Well, from the, from what you're talking about in the, in the like, you know, searching coordinates thing, you could look at a movie like Lion, which I thought it was an incredible film and, and beautifully shot and a, and a great story. But, you know, there's a very inordinate amount of time in that movie spent with a guy looking at Google Maps on a computer, which is someone searching coordinates for something. And that's how it would be handled now. And Close Encounters is the, is the analog, you know, literally the analog to that <laughs> of, you know. Um, yeah, Absolutely popping the thing out and even just to the guys being like hey that's like a $1,200 globe you know and they're like smashing it against the wall and rolling it and which was a a brilliant like cinematic choice too right like they're in this clear trailer and they're all sort of you know working together to hoist this giant globe above their heads and there's one point that's actually on a guy's back there's a wide shot looking at the trailer if you look closely there's yeah, it's like Atlas. Um, hey, uh, uh, I want to get back to one other the thing. Fingers, that- when they follow the fingers, you're like, you know, that you're getting all the way, all the way in and you follow the fingers and you're like, oh shit, Wyoming. And then I love how they all talk over, one guy goes, we're going to need a geodetic survey of map and I want, of Wyoming. Yeah. And I want it down. Then the other guy stands up and he goes, we're going to need a geodetic survey of map. And then he literally <laughs> says the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to something else that you mentioned earlier because I wrote it down. Uh, so you mentioned uh, Scott Squires um, and we've done this, yeah. but mm-hmm. we, we haven't mentioned uh, Trumbull and the cloud tank in this um, is spectacular and the visual effects in this, you know, Spielberg credited as being, you know, without Trumbull he did, had nothing. And so we'd, we're remiss to not mention him. And uh, I, I think, um, well, Matt, you should lead off on this as you, you mentioned Scott, but that cloud tank sequence, again, had such richness that it took us decades and decades before we'd ever be able to do in computer graphics. Yeah, the cloud tank, like as a as a methodology and a means by which, uh, you know, you could pour uh, material, paint, right, into um, uh, an, a sort of an oil-based solution and get, uh, you know, these beautiful um, undulating kind of formations of clouds and structures and movement. Was that what it was? Um, I thought it was diatomaceous earth into a salt mix. I thought it was a salt inversion. Oh, well, that might, that might be right. My, my, oh, okay. uh, my, my research is uh, very vague in this area, but I mean, it's one I'm of those things where shot. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. And it, it looks like, you know, it's so funny as you look at it now, I like watching it, I'm thinking like, oh, that looks like some of the like 2D or 3D fluid sims you can run like with, uh, you know, plugins or, or the, the, uh, what is it? Uh, the engine in, uh, in Maya now, you know, like, I mean, students make stuff like that, like with the, you know, plug and play, uh, you know, solution in a, in an application. And this is like a totally analog solution to create this thing that, you know, I think still to this day, like looking at it on the big screen, it's like, it's so, um, it's so perfect looking like well, and that. Also, and it, also the, f- the light coming through and, the fact that Trumbull, you know, I think uh, Scott told me it was like his first day on the job 
And Trumbull was like, hey, we need to make clouds. Here's 20 bucks. Go to the hardware store, figure it out. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's like- so cool. <laughs> we, um, we worked with Scott uh, at um, Kerner Optical, uh, yeah. like location, the original ILM thing for um, – for FX PhD, and I've got to say, like one of the things I really wanted was not to do a cloud tank. And we've since done cloud tanks, and the trouble is the time to empty the tank and clean it. Like, talk about resetting for a take. Like, this is not, you know, like it, it, I guess it is like a fluid sim in in uh, computer graphics sense, and it takes such a long time to completely clear the tank, clean it, and, and uh, set up a new inversion layer and go again. We decided we couldn't do it, but I mean, Scott's guys is a is a is a great guy, but uh, yes, yeah, as to as to being there with Trumbull, I mean, wow, what a moment in time, right? Well, and the other thing too, I think that is such a, a signature um, component of, it's the thing I guess that stands out to me. It stands out to my childhood memory, but it also still stands out to this day because I feel like you see this same kind of signature choice being made again in Blade Runner, which is also a Doug Trumbull show. But um, the the sort of... Um, the flare, the lens uh-huh. flares that we get from the lights on the ships that we also see again uh, as, a, as a stylistic thing that I know, uh, at least from watching the Danger Stays documentary, Ridley Scott really liked that look and he wanted that same look in in uh, Blade Runner. But, um, but that's but such a neat But did you guys notice that when she goes out into the, outside the house with her torch, you've got an anamorphic lens flare. And when we cut to yeah. the visual effects stuff, it's no longer anamorphic. It's, it's, it's a yeah, spherical true. lens flare. Spherical, yeah. Yeah, I love it's her true. It's one of those things. Forest. It would have been interesting to see it with anamorphic lens flares on the ships too. I wonder what that would have looked like. You know, now that's probably what you would do, right? Yeah, well, I mean, they, it was a very obvious difference them in in post. You know, they add yeah, them. yeah, exactly. In Photoshop, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, they were they were that glare, uh, that look, and that glare that you got um, was spectacular. And and also, it was so sophisticated to play the gag on itself with the helicopters. Like you'd yeah. almost expect that to come later oh, so in a different yeah. film that, you know, but the audience, I mean, I remember just completely being sucked in by that. And then when the choppers hit, it was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> there's only one, there's one visual effect shot in the, in the entire movie that I actually think it doesn't really hold up and it doesn't look that good and it never looked that good. What's I that? wonder if you guys could guess which one well, it would be. The shot but, that I don't like is the shot looking down from the stony, canyony area when it's a two of them looking down before he goes down to the um, landing area. Yeah. And it's this very locked off V section, sort of looks like it's a the, – the comp doesn't seem quite right for perspective It's and it's very locked off. Yeah, that's very, that when, the lights, that's a, go, when the lights go off into the distance. Is that when that they shot? escape the nerve gas and then they go yeah. through the little ravine mm-hmm. and they sit there for a while looking down and then he finally says, I've got to go down and she says, I can't. There's about six shots looking back down at the, you know, yeah. the setting up of the camp in this kind of very <laughs> yeah. V. No, that, that's, that's a good shot. one, yeah. It wasn't the one I was thinking of. The one that I still think is just so tough and I, I, I know why it is the way it is and I, I could imagine how you'd fix it now, but there's a shot where there's a ship that looks like a, like the like a illuminated waffle iron, yeah, <laughs> and it's sort of a disc shape, and they're holding up their hairs, kind of going up, like as if they're static. And the scientists on the oh, landscape, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're holding up these like things, and the camera and the ship are moving in perfect synchronization with each other. And there's something about well, that the shot and the it's the scale like, that's off. 
Well, that and the the fact that the ship and the camera, like there's no yeah. ver- deviation between their motion, right? Like they're locked, they're ganged yeah. together, right? I, for- and it's one shot that like every time I see it, I'm just like, that's the one that I would have tried to fix yeah. if I could have done that show. For me, it feels like it feels more like this because the because you never get a clear shot at what the ship looks like, and because the whole ship kind of looks like the bottom of a ship. That mm-hmm. you're just kind of like you're really confused <laughs> about where the orientation of it and where the guys walking with the thing trying to record clearly audio of of it or something like right, it's just yeah, an oddly some, composed like a Geiger counter yeah it's just like I a really oddly composed shot too. Uh, yeah, it's the it's it's and it's a minor yeah. minor thing, but it's the one shot in that whole uh, of all the stuff with yeah. all the spacecraft and stuff that like I just always look at that one and I'm just like, yeah. And, and by the way, yeah. the reason <laughs> the reason the guys are in the clear uh like trailer is because mm-hmm. that trailer later gets moved to that location. Yeah, it's when it's like it's the, like co- a staging it's like the area. control yeah, room it's like or something. Yeah, it's a staging area. Yeah. You know, when later when the guy goes, hey, uh, start recording in three, two, you know, when the ship shows up, it's the same. (laughs) It's the same trailer. Yeah. Record this conversation way after it already started. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'm sorry that this didn't win for visual (laughs) effects, but it was up against some pretty steep competition that year. Like uh, that was, well, 78, yeah, it was Star Wars and... um, you know, like it was, uh, I mean, it was just an amazing period to be doing this kind of work, right? Um, hey, you know, you said about the ship, the underneath, the, the, the shape of the ship. I don't know if this is true, mm-hmm. but talk about um, urban myths. There's a theory that they, you know, there's a shot looking up at the giant, looks like basically a, a hemisphere um, of the ship. And it's, I think, uh, you know, the you can see the, uh, whatever it is, the rocky thing that they, the Devil's monument, Tower. what is it? The Devil's, Devil's Tower. Tower at the bottom. Anyway, apparently um, it was deliberately shaped to look like a woman's breast because the idea was it was the mothership. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Is that really what we're going with? But um, yes, that's um, well, it's a giant illuminated um, breast in the sky. Well, what I had always read was that the design, you know, when it's upside down and the, all the spires are going up towards the sky and the sort of camera yep. sort of goes by it and while it's flipping, it looks like a city is that the guy who designed it, I can't, his name always escapes me, was think trying to think about what how he should, des, you know, like what it should look like. And he was up, I think, near the Runyon Canyon or the observatory in LA. And he was up there at night and he, he saw LA at night in the 70s with all the buildings jutting up and everything. And he was like, ah, Exactly. So it's really like basically the LA skyline. Uh, as See, a I ship. heard it was a uh, an Indian power plant that uh, Spielberg drove by. Hey, um, can I change the subject slightly, Matt? You made a really good point on an earlier podcast. I want to hook in here mm-hmm. with talking about locations because we're talking about LA oh, and yeah. India here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in that podcast you mentioned earlier, and Jason, you might want to pick up on this. This film just benefits so much from like not shooting on sound stages and being on locations. And that's yeah, like, this I is think, Matt's uh, point, not mine. Yeah, no, I think I think it's a really interesting thing in watching this film, but also like you know the the other sort of big touchstone film of the year uh, <laughs> of the of the genre too, you know, Star Wars. In that, you know, there was a a period of time. 
And, uh, you know, some filmmakers kind of do this too, but there was a period of time with these young uh, filmmakers who were sort of getting this opportunity to make these big budget films um, where they were traveling. They were physically traveling with the camera crew and with some key uh, set pieces in some cases or large set pieces in the case of Star Wars. And they were going and they were shooting you know, on location, they travel to, uh, to India. They travel to, uh, in this film, they travel to India, they travel to Mexico. They're shooting, um, in, uh, I think in Indiana and they're shooting in, uh, you know, Wyoming. And there's, there's an effort that's being made to like heighten and bring about like, uh, a huge amount of production value by shooting on location. And, um, you know, why not? Right. <laughs> and, uh, we don't, we don't see as much of that. I think, uh, in the present day, it's usually one location or one or two locations. And it's really uh, based on, you know, the, the tax incentives yeah. more than well, anything else. Stage probably work now. and window replacements. Right. And, and what's great about this, I think is that like, you know, to actually broaden the scope of the narrative and to make the film and the events transpiring in the film thematically feel so much bigger, they feel global and they feel global because we're actually traveling with Lacombe and, uh, his, uh, Bob, Bal his little Bob Balaban. And there we're traveling with them to these, um, you know, really pretty exotic locales. That's another great shot also is the, uh, to go back to what we were talking about before is the shot of all the, the Indian people in the village running and, uh, tracking with Lacombe. It's just like a shot in, um, Raiders where we see yeah. all the guys working in the, mm -hmm. in the, uh, and that also desert. leads me to one of my favorite shots ever, which is, uh, you know, again, push up over the hill to the guy standing, you know, at the top who's like sort of speaking to the masses. They're all singing basically da, 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 or something in that zone, right? The, the ship had sung to them. And they go, it's like two shots. It's over his shoulder where you see all the people. Mm -hmm. And he goes, tell me where the sound came from. And then it re reverse, huge, massive wide. The guy's super tiny on the hill. And then all the hands totally. pointing up. Yep. You're like, oh my God. <laughs> so it's, Spielberg. It's, yeah. it's such a dramatic moment yeah. too. Like and beautifully uh, planned out yeah. and composed. And all the India stuff was shot by Doug Slocum which mm -hmm. I would imagine is where he met him because then Slocum shot Raiders. Ah, yeah. So okay, great. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. There, there's just so much uh, that's uh, rich in this and uh, so much that's sort of so well designed. Um, and, you know, there's just, I, 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 we discussed a few small points earlier. I want to come back to a couple of other small points because it's easy with this film just to discuss the big stuff. There are moments in this film that, I, as a viewer, find agonizing and I miss that people don't do it anymore. And, and one of them is the, he's built the giant devil's tower in his uh, living room and it's on the TV and he won't look at the damn TV. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> it's not, it's yeah. obviously that they're playing with you, but then somehow like you know that they're not going to like just taunt you to death. But having said that, there's the, you know, you get so involved that you're yelling at the screen going, turn around. Oh, yeah, my kid well, they is make flipping out about that. He's like, look, it's right there. <laughs> it's just it's so great. There. It's such great. It's, it's great filmmaking. It's great tension. It's a great invitation for the audience to participate in acting. the story. Just well, good acting. And, and then they it. inject... 
they inject so much great humor in the scene too, yeah. like where they show him and he's, he's like the days of our lives. Yeah. Like there's a soap yeah. opera playing in the background and like everything's kind of like uh, the, the choices of what's playing on television are sort of mirroring again, like the sort of the ennui or whatever that he's feeling in his sort of, you know, artist, artist malaise. And like, he's sort of been dejected by, you know, his family. And well, I don't and know. So also, it's, it's all so perfect. And he's also that what he's saying is, He's basically like, no, I'm good now. I'm fine. Come back. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll go to therapy. Right. Where? How long often do you want to go? Like, either, he's he's basically yeah, he's trying to reconcile yeah. his marriage. But but the thing that's great is, and again, that's in this push pull of you know when does the audience when should and when does the audience know more than the characters and vice versa mm-hmm. is so the the audience gets the validation even though I think you see Devil's Tower before that. Um, but you just really get the validation. Oh no, I think that's the first time you see it, right? You actually, because after that's when they go to the oh, big shot of it. Yeah. Uh, I think in so. Wyoming. I think that's so when the, the first right. time we see it is on the TV. So, yeah. and, and also, what's her name sees it as well at the same time, right? In her hotel room at night. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barry's mom, and you know that's the moment. Jillian. Yeah, Jillian. But for 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 Neary. You know, that's the moment where the audience is like, oh, he's not crazy. Like, even though the audience knows that aliens exist and and did this thing to him, the, the audience doesn't know what he's, you know, searching for either. And then the audience gets it before him so that they can enjoy him. Just seconds earlier, the audience can then enjoy him having the realization without everybody it get, getting muddled and confusing with everybody having that realization at the same time, which – Interestingly, is like from a pacing standpoint, different and 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 like slows things down just a bit because the Neary household in general is pure chaos, right? In the yeah. normal sense, yeah. when he's talking to the kid about the train and the kids in the background bashing the doll on the thing, and yep. they're all just yep. talking and like there's literally like five things happening at once, but you completely like everyone's used to being able to tune all that out because it that was. That was the thing I liked in the, I did like in the little short film that they yeah. showed. Did you see that when you saw it, Mike? Did they have that no, little short before? No. Oh, man. Yeah, it's like, it's only like, it's maybe 10 minutes I mean, I didn't or need to hear from J.J. Abrams or Dennis Villeneuve. I just need, <laughs> no, that I was didn't unnecessary, either. but. But but it, but one of the things Spielberg says in that opening thing is he was talking about that very thing, and and they show that clip of the of the boy, uh, Toby or whatever, smashing the doll, trying to get the leg to pop out of the plastic doll or whatever against the 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 uh, playpen thing or whatever. But the um, Spielberg's talking about how like in the household, the household is chaos. The family life is chaotic. Um, everyone talks over each other. I think he says something like that. And, and it's how, it's what it was like, you know, it's how people, you know, were, or how people are really when that you, when they're at home and like in the, the chaos of uh, contemporary modern family and clutter everywhere, stuff everywhere. Like, you know, he's got like bits of junk on the dining room table for some, you know, power company stuff that he's, he's working on or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, that stuff's so great. Um, I was going to ask but, you guys though, well, hang on, um, but, but I, so before you leave mm. that, I thought, okay, I totally get what your, your point is, but on, I thought that was more about was just setting up the mashed potato sequence because that's what gave the mashed potato sequence such gravitas to me is that everybody falling quiet and the sun yeah. crying. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it only got that way because there was constant noise and, there, it was like 
it was so haunting and so upsetting when he mm-hmm. was doing that with the mashed potato and you felt so sorry for everyone in that shot. I mean, I just think that was just really and 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 I've got to give it like the acting in that sequence was just on on the money. Like it was just so moving. Well, it's a break. As a it's a break with the norm, you know. Like, yeah. and I think you know, <laughs> there's another reading of the film too. Like, you know, where I think you could read this as like Spielberg is a is a child of divorce, right? And he lived with his mother. And I think there's a whole kind of sort of autobiographical reading you could assign to it if you wanted to. That it, it, in large measure, there's an aspect of the story that's about divorce. It's about the the um, dissolution of family, and it's also about like the childhood wish fulfillment. Uh, of this idea that like the father or the absent father in this case or in Spielberg's family case, like not to be too Freudian about it, but like, but that there's this wish fulfillment that like he left for a, be- a good reason, you know, like yeah. this, this, the, a desire for it not to be, um, oh, you know, meaningless leave. You, yeah. In other words, yeah, he, he literally yeah, went like, into space with aliens like that. Sure. Yeah, of course like, he would have to leave the household, you know. Like it's, okay. it's nice to infuse like, you know, a loss or a sense of tragedy. If you can infuse it with a sense of wonder and magic, you know, like uh, maybe it makes the pain less well, you know, or something. So I think there's an aspect of the movie. You could, that's another reading. I don't even think it's that, that much could, of a stretch to read it because when he's in the tub, like in his clothes and they're, they're arguing and, mm-hmm. and the kid comes in and starts screaming and then she says, go to your room. And there's that single shot of the kid in the doorway, like still all, you know, partially yep. silhouetted just crying and you're like oh my god yeah. like that's a powerful yeah. moment like, in the film for sure and it's very dramatic yeah you know yeah. in a good way yeah. like and when the parents no, no, start to fight the kids start to fight like they, the behavior is mirrored you know i mean it's it's fascinating though it's fascinating like to utilize that kind of real world and real life um kind of struggles, familial and struggles, also, like all that stuff and is to shot, inject it into a story like that. All that family stuff initially is shot very, you know, it's not sh- super shallow. It's, it is kind of close at times, but it's, you know, it's very, uh, verite ish. You're, you're seeing this mm-hmm. family life, but then when you get to that mashed potato scene that you're talking about, Mike, it's, there's probably five split diopter shots of yeah. you know Dreyfus oh, yeah. and, yeah, and the, the kid I forgot and the kid about and you're yeah. you know it's like yeah. all of a sudden you're in, you're like in sitting next to them at the table you know when he's breaking down and you know it's a beautiful way to like draw you into those those quiet moments yeah did, yeah did either just talking about effects a little bit too like did either of you guys see I I, I have to be honest I didn't read it. I just saw the pictures, but, um, I just haven't had a time to sit down and read it, but there was an internet, uh, article that was being passed around and it was about the use of miniatures and oh, yeah. forced perspective mm-hmm. in close encounters. And like the one example that I know of is, um, the code epoxy or whatever, yeah. like the big ship that they find in the Gobi desert. And it's funny to like, look at it and like realize like, Oh yeah, totally. That's a forced perspective shot. Like, still works, but it great. works. It works great, but then there's there's actually other forced perspectives. I don't, I don't know. Did you get a chance to read any of that, Jason? I did. I think the one of the there's these the the it was not only forced perspective, but it was like the um, the one of the there's the high wide of the train tracks, and it's right. It's yeah, painted. Yeah. It's painted with like this really like the camera could like that anamorphism kind of like the camera could really only be at one spot. It's not forced perspective mm-hmm. in scale in terms of like putting a model really close to the camera and the people really far away. 
it's literally painted in perspective uh, uh, to make it feel real. Like they, you know, it's a eight foot table, but it feels like it's a you know twenty mile stretch of road or whatever because of the way it's painted. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, it's incredible. And isn't there one too of uh, I just remember seeing an image of it of a miniature of Devil's Tower. I don't I didn't know what oh, shot I'm that sure was. Sure, yeah. I mean, there there has to be for yeah. that. Probably for that end sequence. Yeah, when the, when the ship comes over and the ring of clouds comes around, I mean, it's totally a miniature, but yeah. it looks it looks amazing. Yeah, in, yeah, that's in, so um, cool. I mean, I think the the use of and the application of so many of like, I guess what at the time was all that you could do, right? Yeah. But I mean, now we look back on it and think like, oh, these like like the mastery of so many of these great old school techniques being like executed at such a like at such a high level. You and know? also, how many Are movies? You- does Spielberg have shooting stars in? Because there's shooting stars in Jaws. Yeah. At night, there's <laughs> shooting stars in this. There's when I, right before all the little ships come and do their dance through the, mm-hmm. the ending arena, there's a shooting star and then there's another one, but it stops and then moves. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I think he's got that, that real Disney thing, you know, the when you wish upon a star thing, which he says in that little documentary, like, yeah. like there, it's certainly a, uh, he has, he's almost like a modern Walt Disney in a sense because all Walt Disney movies, you know, the, the parents actually are n- non-existent because Walt Disney's parents died in the house fire or something when he was a kid. Uh, I, I thought you were going to draw attention to the Wish Upon a Star audio at the end um, with your Disney reference then. Well, um, there's that too, but yeah. But um can I also just, you're talking about old school techniques. I mean, I, in researching this, I found something I just didn't know before, which I'm sure mm-hmm. is not a huge surprise to you, but in, you were talking about uh, Spielberg and actors. So, you know, um, uh, Carrie, the three-year-old actor that uh, played Barry, um, he has to react to things, right? And of course, he, the guy's like really young, so it's really hard to get him to act. Apparently, when he's reacting in the house, um, as he turns the corner and comes down, Spielberg had two guys standing behind cardboard kind of or a, uh, sort of screen areas, right, you know, like um, things are blocking his line of sight. And the first one um, was a gorilla. So the guy appears as a gorilla, not jumps out at him, you understand, just kind of appears. Mm-hmm. And then the second one has a clown, which kind of upset him even more. And then he got the guy who was playing the gorilla to take his head off, his mask off, uh, which revealed he was the makeup guy, Bob um, Westmoreland. And the thing about Bob is that the kid knew him, right? So he laughed because, you know, he's like, I know that person, right? When I didn't know them as a gorilla. And uh, and this is how Spielberg <laughs> got the kind of change in emotion from like surprise to wonder wow. to it's shock so to happiness. brilliant. In, in yeah. a take, right? Which I mean, so if you good. think about it, you can't play that gag more than once, right? You can't have the yep. let's go again and like let's try a different gorilla and a different clown. Um, but yes, but the, it's uh, absolutely magic on screen. Like a kid who's yeah. really almost um, not quite, but almost pre-verbal. You know, like in terms of his yeah. age, like he's still such a little toddler, and the amount of emotion and the emotional changes and the conveyance of feeling on the kid's face. Well, and lack like, of fear, I mean, complete lack of fear of what's happening. Yeah, it's so good. It's such a. It works so well. It's so effective on screen. And you know, I want to. Yeah, we've all seen this movie a million times, and we. It's like ingrained in in not only sort of who we are cinematically, but just how we you see the references of, you know, people have done of opening the door with the light and like that's been aped, you know, time and time again in some fashion and what have you. Um, a friend of mine who's in her late 20s 
went to the movie with her boyfriend, who's I think maybe or maybe they're just in their just around thirty, and neither of them had ever seen the movie. They obviously <laughs> knew about the movie, they hadn't seen it, so they decided to go. And they had got they then got all the references retroactively. Oh, that's so, cool. <laughs> so they were like, "Oh, that's that part in The Simpsons when he does that stuff with the marsh with the mashed potatoes." That I never really understood yeah. why he did that, and now I know why. <laughs> There's all these backwards yeah. references, and then my one friend was like, "Actually," and I had been to Devil's Tower, you know, just randomly with like on a family vacation or like driving cross country or something. And I was like, oh, so like, I was like, that's really interesting because as a kid I saw it and was like, I want to go to devil's tower now. And you saw it and you're like, <laughs> oh, I've been there. I, you know, like you have your own personal point of view of that, of that area, you know, minus people obviously who lived there at the time who saw the film, but it, I, I just not really thought of it from that point of view before. Cause it's so ingrained in, in how many times oh, I've yeah. seen it. There's a um, there's a Pixar cartoon and it has like aliens um, with a kid in the house and stuff and there, there are other cartoons where you'll see yeah. shots that are almost complete ripoffs from uh, but homages right like of um, stuff yeah. from from the film and yeah like they work full stop but then of course when you see them when I re see the film now it's like that shot is a cliche because it defined the cliche. You know, do you guys the, think there's anything about like going back and seeing this again in the theater? Do you guys feel like you know? Does it does it give you any uh, like different perspective or like pause or thoughts the about audio, like, the current the audio, state of cinema? But I mean, the audio is like a thing in the cinema, right? Like you. Oh, I thought you meant compared to watching it not on in the cinema. I was going to say the. It's so wonderful to have this. Well, that's a good. I mean, sound. that's a good point too. No, I'm just wondering, like, as a as a film, like, it's such an interesting construction. Um, we're sort of being, you know, we're very high in our praise for the movie. I just was wondering if, like, you know, I, I feel like I, I, I guess I'm just asking in a self serving way, maybe too, like, because I, I feel like I go and I saw this movie in the theater, and I just feel like, God, you know, it, it sounds so corny. I feel like I'm like, you know, old man yells at cloud or whatever, but it's like, they, they really don't like, they don't make movies like this really anymore. Well, like it's I, so I different. Just, I was just struck by how much I love Truffaut in this film. Like he was to die, what, in 84, yeah. like just, you know, eight years yeah, or something. Not that much later. Yeah. Seven years later. But I mean, this film for me, in addition to all the visual effects and all the great cinematography just has so much depth in the acting. There are so many little acting choices that these people are making and they're not like, you know, the lead sort of actors in the – and they're just great informed choices. I mean I, so, I have yeah. a huge soft spot in my heart for late 70s, early 80s Terry Garr. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. you get Terry Garr at that, at that era and, <laughs> She's and so cool. Karen Allen at that era. Like the two of them together are like Thelma and Louise. You know what I mean? Like it's just – I don't think she's leaving better with the kids. A, yeah. yeah, I mean it's just like – they're so, they're so normal yet not um, normal people in as characters. You know what I mean? As actresses, um, they're so unglamorous, yeah. aren't they? They kind of really they expose. yeah. They're they're really they're natural. Yeah. They're smart. Yeah. They're complex. Like I mean, I think they you know they're they're real. They're real people. Yeah. You know, and it's like they and but they're great actors too. But, like they I, really. I think what you're feeling, Matt, when you say that there is you know, uh, they don't make them like they used to. I'm going to sound like old man yells a cloud now, but it's, it's <laughs> quite frankly in my older age, uh, which is not that old, but old enough to have some perspective. I think that 
and you can tie this to just the way that commercialization and marketing has changed the face of everything now. There's more people on the planet. There's more stuff to sell. There's more ways to sell it and blah, 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 that people are as as both consumers and also as as producers of a product, be it a film or anything else, are more and more afraid of trusting the consumer. And in mm. the 70s, and especially the, I mean, the 70s with the raging, you know, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, kind of that whole era of filmmakers, it was we completely trust and appreciate the audience and know that they will follow us on this journey if we if we give them something worth following, right? And well, it's also weirdly like it's so like optimistic in a weird way too. Like it seems like it's almost devoid of like sarcasm and like um, cynicism. You well, know? there's like, plenty there's of something... cynical movies from that time, but I'm just I just think that but this this trust. movie in particular, yeah. Well, though. this movie specifically, there's a trust in the audience that hey, we're not gonna we're just like sit back and relax. We, we, we know you're smart and we're going to treat you with respect. And you feel mm -hmm. that, uh, I think just the way, same way we kind of all had the same feeling about like moon, you know, that, yeah. that yeah. you know, th there That's is, a a, there is an interaction between make. the filmmaker and the audience that doesn't exist in a lot of movies. It's respectful. Yeah. Like I, we were just having, a, I was just having a conversation today on our drive back from our scout to my office for like a day of prep we we happened upon the ghost you know ghostbusters remake and it's like okay it's not the it's not the performances that were bad because everyone did their job well it's shot well it's you know executed fine but the script is so nervously pandering to the audience like hey hey we know you're going to walk out at any minute or you might pick up your phone in the theater and you know maybe you're someone's going to tap you on the shoulder so we're just going to keep you engaged with yeah. meaningless dialogue for the entire movie when if you watch the original ghostbusters there's almost no exposition and it's like <laughs> and because the audience they trusted that the audience would because 1984 right Ghostbusters, mm -hmm. like still in that zone of, no, no, it's cool. We, we know you came to the theater to see something and, and you're going to let us show it to you. And we, we trust that you're smart enough to, to get where we're going. And personally, that's my feeling. It happened. And it's across everything. You can take that approach to music. You can and take yet, that approach no, to but hang on, but, but wait a second. But, but the flip side of that, Ryan, is you have TV shows now that, you know, like, uh, American Gods or just like a ton of other TV shows that just say to the audience, uh, we're not going to give you everything tied up in a, you know, kind of neat thing. It's going to be challenging and difficult and mm -hmm. I, oh, I don't sure. know. No, I'm just I saying cinema, but I think it's, I, I, I was just using cinema as an example. I'm just saying that's why it stands out even more now. I think it was more pervasive in the seventies and early eighties where the, where the filmmakers trusted the audience. I think that's shrunken down so much that there, it certainly still happens. And that's why we, uh, why shows are responded to well because yeah. they do that, like Breaking Bad and stuff like that, that, that respect mm. the audience. It's, it's people game. who are able to do that, that succeed is what I'm, is what I mean. Well, I've seen people make the, the case too, that it's like films like Close Encounters, films like Star Wars that, that were so huge and were so successful. People were like, wow, we can, we can make a lot of money making these things. Right. So they, it becomes a business. And as it becomes a business, there's a greater and greater effort to try to, um, 
you know, not to be somewhat risk averse, right? And to oh, yeah, to do everything you can to try and... to hedge your bets. And yeah, yeah, so it's like, you know, if you look at Close Encounters and you look at Star Wars, like, you know, whether it was, uh, what's his name, Alan Ladd, you know, on Star Wars, and I'm not certain who uh, who were the producers. Was it um, Julia and uh, Michael uh, Close Encounters? Yeah. Yeah, the Phillips, right? And like the 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 risks that they were taking by investing in these young filmmakers and saying like, all right, like you've got this crazy idea about like, you know, close encounters of, of, of what kind, you know, like of some kind of contact with aliens. Like, and, you know, there's no guarantee that this is going to be something that's going to work and it's going to succeed, but it's a gamble. It's a gamble and it's a risk. And they, they, they invest in someone who's had some success, certainly in the case of Spielberg, like it's not like he was a, a total yeah, sure. newbie or something, but, but at the same time too, like this was not a sure thing, you know? And no, I think one of the reasons it it's, a sequel. yeah. And one of the things that makes it so uh, potent and powerful is all the things we've been talking about. Well, not one of the things, all the things that make it work are all the things we've been talking about, but you wouldn't have known that going in, you know? No. Um, and so, I, I think would that's say part of it he, too. He actually did have to fight against the studio pretty hard during making it. He ended up putting money in for some shots himself because they just wouldn't fund it. It wasn't like yeah. the studio just completely said, hey, here you go, we totally back you, it's all good. Like I think that's mm-hmm. that's to mischaracterise how easy it was for Spielberg to make this film. And one of the things oh, he found sure. most difficult making this film was well, having point. to deal with the studio. Um, but having but said they, that, but there they was did a degree try of to make it that allowed him. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and I just watched with, I'm teaching a, a class this semester um, where we're shooting, students are shooting uh, short films just using like, you know, off the shelf equipment, like smartphones and whatever we've got. Right. And so I've got them storyboarding stuff and writing stuff and shooting things and trying to create high production value with like no money. And um, I, I, for the first week we, we watched um, Hearts of Darkness, <laughs> you oh, know, and yeah. like talk, talk about a story where like you're fighting the studio and fighting the elements and fighting like the health of your main actor and fighting the sanity of your director. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's yeah. like, it, yeah, it's, it's never easy. I'm sure even in the, you know, uh, when you have some, uh, everything seems lined up for success, it's never going to be that easy. So yeah. Guys, you, we're going to have to, to wrap it up there because we've, uh, we've gone over length, but um, it's been terrific talking about this and uh, I've been looking forward to recording this immensely. So um, it has certainly delivered. I can't thank you guys enough. Um, Matt, where can people track you down, follow you, find out more about your teaching? You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wallen or I'm at Virginia Commonwealth University in the Department of Communication Arts in the School of the Arts. And if you're ever on the East Coast of the United States, if you have a layover at Dulles International Airport, which is the Washington, D.C. hub, um, if you get a chance, leave the airport in a cab. Right next to the airport is the Udvar Hazy Air and Space Museum. It's where they have the space shuttle Discovery and all kinds of them, like the Enola Gay and uh, Concorde. But in there is the mothership model uh, from right. Close Encounters. And you can actually go wow. up and look at it and you can even see the little R2-D2 on it. And um, I, if I have some pictures, I can send them to you maybe if uh, anybody wants to see it. But it, it's, a free it mu- it's also a free museum. It costs no money to go there. So. <laughs> well, it sounds really, really good. Jason? Uh, Facebook, Jason Diamond, <laughs> or the Twitters, Jason Diamond, and uh, thediamondbros.com for my brother and I's adventures. Excellent. And, of course, I'm Mike Seymour on uh 
Twitter and I'm uh, on uh, Facebook and, of course, uh, FX Guide. Guys, thanks so much for being uh, on the show. We have some great stuff coming up, not least of which is uh, the new uh, the sequel or the whatever of Blade Runner and there's a ton of good stuff um, uh, in the works. But um, if you liked this retro show, let us know as well. We've done retro shows at various times. Maybe we should do more, maybe... You don't think so? I don't know, but like, let us know. Um, send us an email, post to us on Twitter. We just really appreciate your uh, input. And again, thanks, guys, so much for doing the show without me last week. Although, Matt, if you could just get over your obsession with directing <laughs> certain <laughs> films like Dunkirk, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much for being here, guys. Until next time, see ya. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx@fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.